0: Hey everyone, welcome to Detoxicity, a show about progressive masculinity. My name is Mike Joseph and I thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoy what you hear. If you do, I humbly ask that you leave us a rating or a comment on whichever platform you are using to listen. Additionally, feel free to subscribe and follow me on social media. DetoxPodGuy on Instagram and TizMikeJoseph on Twitter. If you'd like to offer feedback, suggest a guest or be a guest yourself, reach out to me on socials or via email detoxpod@gmail.com. Enjoy the episode. I also want to take this opportunity to wish a happy Pride month to all of the folks out there who identify as LGBTQIA+. One thing I think we can all agree on is that relationships are hard. Whether familial, platonic, sexual, or even in the workplace, the simple act of coexisting peacefully with people can take significant work, as rewarding as the best of them can be. The three men I speak with in this roundtable episode know from relationships, I would actually qualify them as relationship experts. And while I met all three of these men, Dylan Thomas, Kevin Patterson, and Ryan Bentham, Through their work on the podcast Life on the Swing set, which mainly focuses on polyamorous relationships, swinging, and queerness, they each have much to offer beyond what you may assume at first glance. Yes, we talk about polyamory, a relationship style that is slowly becoming more and more normalized and the benefits and the drawbacks that come along with having space for multiple qualitative relationships in one's life. We also talk about parenting, as every member of this panel except me is a father. We talk about cultural norms and how they foster dishonesty and poor communication skills, specifically in men. We talk about confronting jealousy, self-identification, so much more. This is one of my favorite discussions in the admittedly short history of detoxicity, and I think that even if a sex-positive or polyamorous lifestyle doesn't appeal to you, there is much to learn here. So without further ado, here's me, Dylan, Kevin, and Ryan. This recording in progress thing is new. I've never heard that before. And I want to start by having each of you
1: briefly introduce yourselves. And Kevin, we'll start with you. My name is Kevin Patterson. I'm the author behind Love's Not Colorblind Race and Representation and Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities and the For Hire series of queer polyamorous superhero novels.
0: All right.
2: I'm Dylan Thomas, one of two hosts of Life on the Swings of the podcast, uh, a podcast that we've been doing for about 10 years on. Swing, polyamory, non-monogamy, and, and queer topics. And we are, number one, very... I'm talking we, right? Like, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Mike. And just just happy to be talking to cool folks because it's been a long time.
3: I'm Ryan Bentham. I am a lot of different things. For the purposes of our conversation today, I am one half of the dynamic duo with Ginger Bentham. So Dylan and I share Ginger in that sense. But when I get Ginger, we do a podcast called Intellectual Foreplay, which is really... A voyeur a podcast into our relationship and how we process and discuss and share with each other our experiences, both with other partners, as well as within life in general.
0: The first question I, I, I want to ask is just what And I don't know if I asked any of you individually, because you've all three been interviewed on uh, individually on the podcast before. Where Did the light bulb go off where you decided that the quote unquote traditional relationship structure was not going to work for you? Anybody can answer that, but I'm just curious as to whether that's something that was always thought about or whether it was introduced to you or how did that happen?
1: I'd been non-monogamous for maybe a decade before before the light bulb really really struck. And it was something really simple where I was I was on an elevator with my wife and somebody who I had been flirting with and I hadn't really been able to give much time to this person who I was flirting with. We were we were all at an event and we were all focused in different directions and on this elevator I just kind of touched her hand and she gave me a look and I gave her a look and it was a sort of charged look. And then the elevator door opened and we went back to focusing our energies in different directions. And at some point I thought about that exchange and I was like, that was just a touch of a hand and like a couple of seconds of a charged look. But in some other relationship, that's a violation, I can't go back to that. There's no way that I could be in a place where I can't fully explore whatever interaction I want to fully explore.
3: For Jin and myself, it was really similar, Kevin, in the sense that we had this long history, really since the time that we met, where we were non-monogamous. We weren't doing it necessarily as consciously as we wanted to be doing, but We had this like seed that was planted, but for us, it really blossomed into how we wanted to structure and reinvent our relationship. When Jen and I, one of the things that we often used to do was have a lot of sexy talk and we'd inquire with each other about what turns each other on. And so I had a conversation and my question to her that evening was, who's the last person that turned you on? And she said, the woman at the coffee shop and never before had she acknowledged her bisexuality in that direct of a way in our relationship. And we then started to really have that conversation about what does that really mean? And for me, particularly as her partner, who wants her to feel fulfilled in all of her different ways and dimensions and facets, I really like had to look up against this idea of, as a partner of a bisexual woman, I can't satisfy every one of her needs and desires. Like by definition, what do we do with that? And so we started to really have a very you know, practical conversation about what are the options? And, you know, there were not a lot of great resources out there at the time. This was, you know, in the kind of early 2000s of... How to really do this consensually and how to bring a different level of mindset to it, other than the kind of trope of the 70s swinger key party orientation, <laughs> which wasn't how either of us ever were interested in rolling. So those seeds were there. And when we look at what we call our like revisionist history of our relationship, you know, kind of looking at the rearview mirror of, geez, if we just knew then what we know now like all of these pieces would have clicked together a lot earlier and probably a lot differently.
2: I'd say for me, there were a lot of moments that it should have clicked. If I was a brighter person at the time or if I had more tools at the time or more background knowledge that it should have been obvious. But I, my teens and my twenties were littered with the hearts of people that I had broken up or that I broken because I went from one relationship to another to another, not because those people were inherently bad or not doing it for me, but because uh, I felt like I was inherently bad because those people would do it for me. And then I saw someone else and wanted that with someone else. And so I thought that first person wasn't for me because as a good Catholic boy, I should want to love one person and be with them for the rest of my life. And it never really occurred to me until i was with my wife my partner at the time tonya that this is actually a problem because i found that i was in bed i found myself in bed barely not cuddling with somebody but very much feeling like i was cuddling with somebody and rationalizing to myself you know what i'm not cheating on my wife right now because or my partner right now because we're not actually doing anything. And then finally realizing, wait, this is really, really dumb of me because number one, like I'm cheating right now. And number two, why do I keep ending up in this situation? This isn't working for me, but I love my partner. So that was the, that wasn't when I knew non-monogamy was for me, but that's when I knew monogamy was broken for me. And I didn't know if it was because I was broken or if there were other options, but I decided to talk to her and that started a very long road littered with many mistakes that we then worked on to get to where we are now. So
0: it's interesting to me that with the three of you, there has been this deep communication element involved in the discoveries, you know what I'm saying? And honest communication isn't something that men are known for on a particularly regular basis. (laughs) You don't say. Yeah. So was it a big step for you all to really kind of confront this and approach it in a consciously communicative manner or, uh, Ooh. have y'all just always been like, okay, I'm an open communicator. This is cool. I'll just
1: talk about it. I'm seeing head shakes. I came to Namagami as a joke in that my wife and I, and some friends, we were going out to an event where there was going to be a lot of partying and I kind of jokingly said, you know, something wild might happen and the idea of a threesome became uh became an option that like that got put on the table and that's sort of my non-monogamy origin story so like there was no clear communication I made a joke and we stumbled fast backwards into non-monogamy and we just sort of stayed there and with so much of my monogamous wiring my socialization I spent the first couple couple years of it, like being dishonest about like petty stuff, stuff that I could have been open and honest about, you know, like, you know, I I said, I was over at this person's house when really I was over at that person's house. And like a lot of the growing pains was just unlearning a lot of the secretive behavior that I had been trained made uh, monogamy possible. A lot of the denial of real desires that made monogamy possible me becoming a better communicator required a lot of unlearning and a lot of like really conscious and proactive work in order to maintain relationships that I knew would would thrive with honesty and integrity.
3: I can totally relate to that, Kath, because, you know, I feel so much like for, for me, I had to overcome my own resistance to Dylan, similar to what you were sharing, like What was coming through me, like these desires and acknowledging them and being able to give voice to them. And I think that that is something, Mike, that is hard, has been hard for me as a male in our culture to give voice to any of my feelings and emotions in a way that doesn't make it feel like I am not showing up for my partner in a way that she expects me to show up. You know, if I show vulnerability, then I can't be. The the prototypical, like strong stoic male that is like the rock. But you know, there is this, <clears throat> I think, real opening up that then, you know, in my experience, it's like the opposite happened. The more I was able to share what was happening inside of me, the more she felt like she could, you know, read and depend upon me. And we call it sharing context with each other. So there's content. You know, that's the, the actual event itself. And then there's the context, you know, how was I feeling about the event? What was going on inside my brain? And so we have these conversations very regularly. And I feel like similar to Kev, what you were sharing, I've had to work my ass off to learn how to express myself in these ways. And the reward is fantastic. I feel better. I feel more in control of, of my own mental you know loops in gymnastics you know i feel like i i'm moving toward being able to have that command over you know parts of my life that have i've have, you know re- really struggled with in the past in terms of self-negative thoughts and self-limiting thoughts generally but all of that being said i think the communication piece for me was very much a learned process and somewhat of a messy one
2: I wish I could say I couldn't relate to both of those things, but I'm the kind of guy that was trained from what feels like birth to suffer in silence and to be that rock, and to keep my feelings to myself because they were a weakness that people—they were either weakness that other men didn't need to see, or they were a liability when in relation to everybody else because uh, then you, you would lose status because you would look just. Weak for feeling these things like self-doubt. There's no. There's. You have to wear your strength on your sleeve. You know there was an extra bit of the way that strong Mexican men related to each other, especially in family, that that really got pounded into me, and I learned a lot of that from. It. And then, Kev, kind of like, for me, the 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 lying came with myself. I was an expert in lying to myself, which then allowed me to lie to everyone else. And, and yeah, like the, the whole rationalizing, laying next to someone that gave me the aha moment. I had done that a million times before to where I I could I would never feel bad about doing something or being around somebody or, or giving somebody some emotional stuff that really, I shouldn't be giving to them if I was in a committed relationship with, with somebody. Uh, and as long as I lied to myself, It was okay to lie to everybody else, even though I was lying to everybody else. And so once I started telling myself the truth, I started to realize I didn't have to lie to anyone else. Or at least I had the choice. I didn't have the choice before, but once I started telling myself the truth, I could.
3: Authenticity is scary for men.
1: (laughs) It is. And something that I was very lucky with, and I get the impression that the same is true with Dylan, is that we had people in our life who, once we decided to be authentic... They were there to hear it. They were willing to look past our previous mistakes. They were able to understand why we made those mistakes. And then they were like, okay, well now that you've been doing that, we can be honest now, let's just be honest now. (laughs) Isn't that such a
0: freeing feeling? Like, I don't know, for me, I, I think back to being closeted about, I mean, lots of things whether it be you know my sexuality my romantic orientation my mental health struggles all of that stuff and now that all that shit is on the table i feel so much different it's like having a weight lifted um off of you and i i not to project on you all i would have to imagine it feels the same for for all of you to just not have to carry that this not necessarily dishonesty but bending of the truth kind of it has to feel freeing to not have to carry that with you all the time particularly in your close closer relationships
2: well with, with people that i know they know that i don't play the game anymore and so there's not an expectation that i'm holding something up and that they need to play the game with me
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, because i think we all I'm not going to assume anything, but like, I know how to play the game. I know I can do that when it's necessary. You know, I, I, sometimes I have to pump myself up and, and be forward and be aggro as a guy. And sometimes I've got to call on some of that old experience because if I don't, then there's going to be another problem. But around the people that knew me, once I dropped that, it's like they could, they were able to drop it with me too. And it was like, at the same time, I was introducing myself to other people. As having new stuff in my life, they were introducing themselves to me as new people that I just wasn't able to see before because we couldn't physically see each other uh, in, in our mind's eyes is as, as weird as that sounds. We just never saw that side of ourselves, you know?
1: There's this thing that I had read and I don't remember where I read it, so I can't quote it accurately, but it was basically, if you don't have a place to uh, to put your honesty, you're only going to bring in your, your mistrust. You're only going to bring in your mistruth. And At some point, while I was being dishonest about ticky tacky bullshit, I realized like, wait a minute, I've got a place here in my then girlfriend, now wife, where I can be honest. I've got a place where I can put my truth. I don't have an excuse to not do that anymore. And if I have to lie to maintain what I think the standards are of this relationship, either the relationship needs to change or the standards needs to change and that's sort of where we went from there. Like I said, it's, it was a whole long process of introspection and an uh, unlearning. What
0: in terms of masculinity and this isn't necessarily tied into polyamorous or non-monogamous relationships, what has been the hardest thing to shake off? What has been the hardest thing to get rid of? You know, for me, I think one of the things that's been hardest to get rid of is the the anger piece and and not really knowing what to do with my frustration and i'm still like i i don't i don't even know that i'm that far in in my journey with that i know that it can manifest itself in some really shitty ways and i need to do stuff about it i'm not sure what that stuff is all the time but in terms of of just kind of the process of becoming a better person what has been the hardest sort of learned masculine trait to get rid of
3: for me it's been the expectation that i need to go 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 and that if i as a man enjoying any type of leisure for myself that i am insert pejorative term so i've really had to un- unlearn to use kev's term the idea that you know having any kind of self-care for you know for my own pleasure is not you know, again, yeah. It, it's not demasculinizing to me. I don't know. Demasculinizing is not actually a word. I so. mean,
0: we'll make it a word.
1: <laughs> I understand what you mean. I
0: appreciate think it. That, that hustle mentality is so pervasive, and it's so damaging. Where we're, yeah. you know, we're not horses. We're we're humans. Like we all have, oh, our, and I even horses me, I, break. <laughs> I almost
3: fucking killed myself because of it. Right. Like truly feel like I did it to myself and brought myself in activating this rare genetic condition I had ending up in the hospital, literally almost dying to have this wake up call of chill the fuck out. Right. Like it, you know, you don't have to work so hard. And of course, you know, it's also from my perspective, reinforcing to have a partner like Jen, who is, you know crazy, magical woman and all the amazing ways possible to support the kind of woo aspect. And you know, Dylan has had his ear bent many times with Jen and I going into, you know, energetic sex conversations and, you know, all the woo stuff. So it balances me out in that way. And I'm into it. I've been into it.
1: Like, I know one of the masculine programming things that I had to sort of work through was the territoriality, where that's never really been my thing. Where like, the first time my wife got together with somebody else, like, I couldn't generate the territoriality. There was like an expectation of it that I just couldn't generate. All I really cared about was that she had a good time and that she was home. And that was right. really important to me. So now like when i meet my metamores specifically my my cisgender male metamores i lay it on really thick with the hospitality you know like on on that first meeting it's like hey how's it going here's a place on my couch here's a you know do you want a drink you got it you good right. just because i'm right. making sure to
3: his, making sure his ego is all, all set yeah sorry yeah. you're saying about I,
1: yeah, yeah. I want to diffuse that that possible first few seconds of territoriality. And right, up- right. Because, like, here's some here's some person coming into my space with my partner, and they've never met me. They don't know if I'm going to pick a fight or if I'm going to be cool. So I lay it on extra thick right away because I don't want – like, I'm not interested in whatever that uh, law of the jungle standoff there is, you know? Yeah, that's
3: fascinating.
1: And and at the same time, like there was a a recent time where I did feel not exactly territoriality, but like a sort of uncharacteristic jealousy. And that's not to say that I, I don't get jealous, but it was uncharacteristic in that I had a partner who had taken sort of a centerpiece place in my life. And then they had a partner come in who took more of a centerpiece place in their life. And I had to sort of reconcile what my feelings were around that. And I had to find a way to do that in a way that didn't accuse or blame or it basically it was my problem. And I had to find a way to process it without making it their problem. How did you get there, Kev? Like what was what was the process of, of
0: sort of managing that jealousy? Because I think a lot of people who may be thinking about non-monogamy have this are not maybe are only jealous because they are programmed to feel jealous when someone like it's a whole feeling that your partners are property and that that uh yeah. Yeah, that's how you're supposed yeah. to
3: respond yeah if you're not jealous then there's something wrong with you yeah
0: and that yeah. they don't but, have agency yeah, exactly. over their over yeah. their brains and their bodies and that whole stuff which is all like ter- i mean terrible shit when you think about it but How did you manage your jealousy or what was the outcome
1: of you managing your jealousy in that situation? Thankfully, I I heal quick, but for this one, I just kept, I I spoke to my partner about it, but I prefaced it by saying like, I'm not saying this because I need you to do anything different. I just want you to know where my head's at. And I need you to offer me reassurances that I'm still an important person in your life, if that's still Mm -hmm. true. and at the same time i kept reminding myself like this isn't about me you know my feelings about where they're going in their other relationships that has nothing to what they're doing has nothing to do with me they're with somebody that addresses certain needs in their life they're with somebody that fills a certain role in their life and it doesn't have to be me and if it's not me it's not because i'm you know, subpar or substandard as a person or as a partner. It's just, this is what they need right now. I'm somebody else. And just knowing that they're not specifically out to harm me. Yeah. It allowed me to sort of like get the perspective. If they're just living their best life, it's not about me. They're not doing something to me. They're doing something for them.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, Kev, because that level of awareness is not, present in a lot of my other brothers and friends and I would love to hear how all of you feel but sometimes it feels very it's kind of like dealing with the people that you mentioned in terms of potential new partners where you have to like roll out the red carpet because you don't know how volatile their egos are and all this other jazz and I'm less and less interested in hanging out with those guys and so I'm finding myself hanging out with guys less and less so, you know, other than Mike's listeners because, you know, we need a lot of detoxicity. You know, there aren't a lot of dudes that have the ability to do that process that you just mentioned, or maybe I'm not giving my brothers enough credit. I don't know. Uh, if, you know, y'all have vast networks of other bros that, you know, can kind of think about things this way, but I'm loving this conversation because that community doesn't exist for me, and I'm interested in in whether that resonates with anybody else in terms of you know, not hang out with the bro dudes in ways that are often expected of us.
1: I got a homeboy who I used to like play video games with and he started asking me for relationship advice because like he's like a Bible belt guy. He was having trouble in his marriage. And he was asking me, a guy he only knows through video games, for relationship advice because Anytime he asked the people at his closest circle, all he got was read the Bible. That was like the entirety of their relationship advice was read the Bible and pray on it. And like amongst my bros, I'm the quirky guy that you can have real conversations with because they know I'm going to take people where they're at. They know that I'm not going to judge them. A lot of my friends, they haven't done the same level of like self-work and introspection and what have you that I've done but whenever something comes up in an area where i've done that kind of work and they haven't i'm just real matter of fact about it like so if i'm hanging out with my friends and they're like yeah you know we i was out with my girl and she looked at some other dude i'll you know i'd very quickly be like yeah but that's not about you though and they'd want to turn it into a want to like presented as if this justifies any confrontation I had with my girlfriend. And I'd very right. simply say, yeah, but that wasn't about you though. And, and because I'm the other cis bro in the room, they're giving me the credibility that they weren't giving to their girl. Yeah. And now because I talked them off of that ledge, they're going to have more productive conversations with their girlfriend about that situation later on. I was rolling
2: that around in my head because, oh, man, all right. I used to be that guy Kev and yet I, so being seen as one of the bros was perfect for me in my friend group because then I could do that. But once I was more out and I got seen as not one of the bros in that way because anybody knew Or or anybody that was already to a point where it was no big deal, you know everything was fine. But to anybody that I'd been friends with for a long time and that I would otherwise be great friends with, I stopped being the go-to person once I was more out because they couldn't trust that advice from me because I became a threat. You know, it's easy to be friends with a bunch of other guys when you're all married because even though there's this undercurrent of cheating and wanting to be a dog and uh, being defined by to answer one of your earlier questions like about what are the one of the things that you have had to overcome from just masculine stuff right like not being defined by the quality of your life or in a much more well, quality of your wife or in much more vulgar and dated terms like being defined by the quality of the pussy that you had on your arm but once they understood that i was able to that, that my wife let me have other relationships <laughs> which is right Once my wife made me do that, all of a sudden, they were threatened by me because I could go and fuck their wives. And number one, like, sure, but also, that's not how it works. And explaining that kind of nuance to my friends that didn't have all the tools to get that, it's like, I I lost the opportunity, right? I could have done it from behind the lines if my strategy was bring everybody's relationship game up. But by the time I was out and I realized I needed to play that game to bring everybody's relationship game up, I lost that opportunity. So I lost a whole bunch of guy friends because of that. And so all the guy friends I've made since then, they're not all non-monogamous and they're not all in, in many of the other communities I'm in, but I've been able to be that guy to them. And I can be that guy for people at work and I can be that guy at the gym or I can be that guy in a lot of different places but I lost the opportunity to be that guy to all my friends and that's still something that that gets me because at the time what I needed was to be out and be more authentic and be myself finally and I lost the opportunity to potentially help my friends who needed it most in that moment because they all had various issues with their wives at the time they were desperately looking for somebody to talk to you about. And then all of a sudden they couldn't because any vulnerability they showed about their wife meant that their wife is more potentially available to me.
0: But to steal Kevin's line, isn't that on them and not on you? That's not a yeah. failure on your part. That's them not stepping up to the plate. And I would yeah. assume that you've left the door open for them to come back and approach you if they get the religion and they're like I I misjudged the type of person Dylan was or I have grown as a person now I'm ready to have these real conversations
2: so you're absolutely right it is about them and yes I did leave it open in the future to actually one of those friends just recently came back into my life like a year and a half ago which is weird to think that was recently but like that was you know six months pre-pandemic but you know he's got kids now and and he's got that that adult looking life but he still had the the same feelings and struggles and stuff but had no one to really let that stuff out to but our families enjoy each other now and and he can talk to me about that stuff and it's because when I kind of got left behind slash I left all of them behind. It was not a okay. Now let's fight about it. It was just a hey. I understand. Like I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. And so yes, one one of the many found their way
0: back. It feels like it's difficult in general for dudes to relationship properly, whether it be with their romantic partners or with their homeboys, with their friends, just that intimacy and honesty that's required to have a, a sustained, close relationship. They take a lot of work, but they also take a level of understanding and honesty and, and shedding of, of, what's the word I'm looking for, of program behavior that folks just are not ready for and it's frustrating because I, when I talk to people whether it's again talking about mental health or talking about sexuality it's like people want to be free but they don't know how to free themselves
2: well that's the thing right sure it's hard in the beginning but then it's easy once you find that freedom it's like oh god this relationship's so easy we can just be around each other and it's cool and and I think that sometimes it's hard for people to see past all the work that they got to do to get there
3: It takes so much less energy to actually just speak our truth as opposed to try to, you know, figure out how to speak the truth and how to cloak it in a way that you feel, you know, we should do to kind of use that term. Like what masculinity teaches us how we should express ourselves. Like there's a lot of, Mike, to use your term, programming going into that. And that's wasted energy, which I feel as Dylan, from a freedom perspective if If my mental energy isn't going there, then I can, you know, do it. I can redirect it towards all sorts of other fun things in my life and explore and read and create and, you know, have pleasure in all different ways. So it's very liberating from my perspective as well.
0: Two things I want to talk about, uh, and they're actually very not related topics. So I don't know why I just put them together in my head. One is Dylan and Ryan, you both identify as heterosexual men, whereas Kevin, you are, are starting to identify more as a queer uh, uh, man. And, yes. you know, I mean, one thing that I think i've learned kind of on the same track as you know polyamory and and non-monogamy is the fluidity of sexuality and the acknowledgement that intimacy does not always have to be sexual and for me personally just the enjoyment of platonic intimacy with my male friends which is different than me wanting to have sex with dudes what are your thoughts on on that whole thing
2: so figuring out how to be closer to other men Uh, so everything i grew up with that told me how to have relationships was how to have relationships with women and that being physical with them was was the primary component to doing that and so and and it also was a and 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 honestly i mean it was gay to have that kind of intimacy with men, which I mean, okay, yes. But also, yes, you got to be careful about how you're physical with men because you could be perceived that way. And that is a bad thing. So I learned that I had to keep my distance from men, no matter how much I felt like I love them as as people, as friends, as family, because otherwise it would be too close. And any guy that you got too close with was a it, it was a romantic thing because anything that close was romantic, anything intimate was romantic and sexual. And so I had to learn how to be able to be emotionally intimate with men. And that made it okay to be physically intimate in the way that like, it isn't uncomfortable to sit next to a guy and end up shoulder to shoulder, as long as we don't have pads on or playing a sport Or, or even to like just lay down on a couch. I'm not talking like full-on cuddling, anything, but just like be in each other's space and have it not be weird. I still struggle with that every so often because it'll still come up and then I have to over, I have to override that and say, no, nah, it's fine. But no one taught me how to do that and I've just had to be cool and, and find it there. But once I found that, it allowed me to be just cool in general with other guys and be able to relate to them because there is not this extra, oh, is he going to think, That I mean something that I don't. Like I don't have to play the straight card, I don't have to say I'm married, I'm married. I don't say it, I don't have to put on the I'm I'm totally straight vibes in order to be safe around other straight guys. And honestly, it also ends up coming across that way on accident because just being confident and secure in in my own shit and my own attraction has has made it. Almost impossible for me to be perceived that way. Again, if the goal is not to be perceived as gay, which is in this scenario, a bad thing, then just being confident means I'm not being perceived as gay because of how I just move about the world. It's weird how that ended up working, but it's how it, I guess, ended up working.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree with what Dylan was saying in terms of that check-in, that momentary this is okay sort of moment every time that there's any sort of like intimacy there and for me whether that's sexual or non-sexual me being open to that kind of intimacy is a major thing for me and I'm glad to be in that space maybe one day I will get to that place where I'm not where I don't have to momentarily pause and say this is okay but right now I'm not there yet but I I'm just excited to be in a place where I'm open to any of that because the wiring is strong. The programming is strong.
3: Yeah, I can totally relate to that, Kev. And one of the reasons that I've resisted using and identifying as queer is because I am very mindful around what that entails and what that really connotes as it relates to interest and, I have had a lot of sex with men, frankly, in my life, and I've enjoyed all of that. And it's interesting because I haven't had, for me, like the check-in that you described and that Dylan referred to, I've had it kind of on the back end of... You know, I'm very pleasure-based and I can connect with a brother in that way, in the general sense of brother, of course, you know, just as a, you know, as a friend, as another male and be able to enjoy that for what it is. And that intimacy on a physical basis has its own place, but it's not something that I am seeking to develop per se. And so I, again, kind of resist using the term queer to just describe my own sexuality because I feel like that does, in my mind, indicate a direction of interest. And I wouldn't want that to be misinterpreted.
2: So like, if you'll allow me to indulge myself for a minute, because I, I spent a lot of time talking about this. I, I had a long talk with myself and a bunch of other people on whether... Because I feel straight. You ask me what my sexuality is. I feel straight. My attraction is like, yeah, I'm not interested in men. I'm not interested in masculine. But there's this big ass world of other gender representation and, and how someone feels and all that stuff that I'm potentially attracted to. I have a pretty wide attraction range there. And to a lot of people, including a lot of very queer people, that makes me queer. And I'm like, well, I mean... I I don't know, like, but, but how do you know that you, how do you know that you feel queer? How do you know that you felt, when did you know that you're not straight? And I, and and I've asked that question and everybody has like that moment. If somebody asked me that question, I don't feel
1: good. Everything you just described Dylan was me about three years ago or so. And the thing that was said to me that sort of put it over the edge was that somebody said, I don't feel queer enough is the queerest possible thing you could say. <laughs> apparently apparently that's a such a very common thing. And I know for me the, the I stopped identifying as straight when like first when I didn't want to invalidate the sexualities or the genders of the people I was attracted to. And then at some point when I was like it would just be dishonest of me to call myself straight. Like mm-hmm. At first it was an outward motivation and then it was an inward motivation where I looked at the people who I had been hooking up with. I looked at the people that I was attracted to and I said, it would be disingenuous of me to call myself straight anymore. I don't know what to call myself. And then somebody told me the queerest possible thing you could say is I don't feel queer enough. At which point that's just where I landed. And I count my experience not as Contrary to conventional ideas of queerness, but in addition to uh, conventional ideas of queerness, so I don't have to have the same story. I don't have to have the same mm-hmm. the same queer origin story as everybody else. It could just be there are a lot of queer origin stories, and mine is just a little different than the standard narrative. That
3: is so beautifully said, Kevin. Thank you for sharing that. That, that is, is wonderfully really said, well,
0: and I, I do think in terms of queerness, uh, what maybe separates queerness from heterosexuality, aside from the obvious, is that the queer origin stories are so varied and no two are the same. It's very easy to fall into straightness, right? But queerness means a million different things. Uh, a million different types of experiences, a million different frequencies of experiences, you know, and as the the gender and sexually sexuality palette expands, or at least expands in public knowledge, I, I do think, and I, I've always been one of those people who's like, everybody's queer, kind of, and I know that that isn't totally the case, but one thing that's always stuck with me, and this is thought process in addition to personal experience, is that people are generally queerer than they represent themselves as?
3: Well, Ginger, of course, being the sexologist, would probably back that up with some really well documented research. So the Kinsey scale, I think, is kind of that whole idea of yeah. there, you know, is quote unquote queerness that's expressed or not expressed or repressed in everybody.
0: And I do think that for men, if it, wasn't, yeah.
3: Yeah,
0: if it wasn't so taboo mm-hmm. in so many circles, I, I think those numbers would kind of fly off the charts. Oh,
3: absolutely. Because it feels like it's a survival orientation, right? right? If And you can speak to this a lot better than I could, Mike, certainly from a lived experience. But if I am representing myself in a certain way that is associated with weakness, then people are going to come after me and tear me down. Right. So I would love any... Of your thoughts around that because that does feel like that's where that fear comes from very survival oriented like it is
0: completely survival oriented and for me
3: my coming out yeah
0: this is a weird thing my coming out process was not a straight line it's been situational in a lot of senses uh, <laughs> you got that kevin but a lot of the reason that i did not come to terms with my sexuality for such a long time is because there was the illusion of weakness or the illusion of being afraid of feminization you know feeling like i was a letdown to my family and my friends and and all of these cultural stigmas and i had to in order to fully be myself i unfortunately had to make breaks with a lot of people. But in a more positive sense, I made breaks with a lot of cultural stigmas and and a lot of really shitty programming to become the person that I am today. You know, and I'm still working on that. Like I still have, you know, I I have, I don't know if I want to call them blind spots, but sometimes, you know, a little bit of, of discomfort, even like going back to what Dylan was saying, like I There are times when I have less trouble or less issues with the idea of sucking a dick than I do with the idea of putting my arm around another guy or walking arm in arm with a platonic male friend down a street or kissing a straight Mm -hmm. friend on the lips. So it's just a lot of this stuff Mm -hmm. that I still got to get over. I'm still kind of working on fixing. And there's also still something that I need to become less concerned with is the idea of appearing effeminate. Like even the first time I wore a kilt in public, that was a huge step because I was like, what are people going to think? And then it was like, you know what, Mike, you're however old you are, probably like 38, 39 at that point. Why should you even give a fuck?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, real. So in my book, Let's Not Colorblind, like I identify as heterosexual and that book came out just 3 years ago 2018 and by the time that book actually released my attractions had already started moving around and i i always say that like i wasn't straight by default setting like i had a lot of thoughts and a lot of introspection around my sexuality and i always landed on straight you know i rolled the dice and landed on straight every single time and i was comfortable in that place and then By the time my attractions moved around, I was in already such a queer-friendly, sex-positive, open and uh, accepting space as far as my support staff, my support system, the people around me, the people that love me, that there was never a reason to be closeted about any of it. There was no conflict. It was just oh, word, here's some new information about myself. And the people around yeah. me were like, oh, cool. That's, that, that's cool information. So we can invite you to, to both orgies now instead of just <laughs> the one <that> you... <sighs> And then I was like, oh yeah. Well, I wasn't even aware that the first one existed, but thank you for letting me know, I'll be there on Sunday. And <laughs> I wonder where we would have been. Like, like if my attraction shifted in high school, when mm-hmm. I was in an old boys Catholic school, you know what would have happened then as opposed like if if my if i if my attraction shifted at 17 as opposed to 37 i would have been in a completely different space space, headspace physical proximity space that would have changed the journey entirely but at at 37 38 it was just it was just new information neutral information so i had to accept it as that as well
3: yeah it's kind of like you know, it becomes a cool experience as opposed to something that you're judging yourself around because you've got this supportive community that values these new experiences. They've had similar experiences themselves. And, and so it's like, how can we help each other kind of level up in a way?
1: Yeah. Like I had to accept myself in the same way that I would have accepted everybody else who came out Mm. around the same time one thing that what you just said brought up in my head kevin is
0: thinking about high school and thinking about i mean this wasn't my experience per se but a lot of people that i've spoken to had experiences as adolescents as young adults where they did experiment And it seems like there is almost a license to do that when you're younger and then you hit adulthood and it's like, oh, got to compartmentalize that part of my life and put it in the back of my head, never speak of it again. I don't know if anyone else is familiar with that experience or has had that experience, but I I wonder why that happens. Like there's. A freedom that you may have as a younger person with experimentation that once you become an adult, particularly if you're in an environment that is restrictive, like that part of your life just gets compartmentalized and folded away.
3: I I haven't had this lived experience, but it's easy to see, you know, you can put that into kids being kids kind of mentality or whatever the youthful experimentation is. So that was a phase As, as you you know, well pointed out, Mike, is you, know, you move into a different set of expectations about how you're supposed to show up for the world, then you can re-categorize some of these prior experiences as, you know, I was a kid then, but now I'm adult. Now, so now I'm following all of these rules, but I haven't had that lived experience. I think that, and going back to what Kevin said, you know, it's interesting to reflect back upon my life journey and story and see all the twists and turns and realize that that set of experiences at the time, I put you know, labels on them, good and bad, like, you know, happy and sad. But in retrospect, it was all part of my path. And I also you know, can very much relate to what Kevin was sharing in the sense that I do feel like I am able to explore other dimensions of myself and my own sexuality because of the partners that I have, and because the, of the community that I'm a part of, including the swing set community, by the way. Mm-hmm. And the trip that we've done every year has been a beautiful opportunity to explore those edges within myself because it is an environment that welcomes all comers. And the queerness is on full display and will be supported by Mike Joseph coming up.
0: Yes, yes, indeed. I'm super excited about
3: that. Yeah. So it's been a great opportunity to kind of live or learn by experience, so to speak, relative to trying things on for size. Again, in a very much way that Kevin was was reflecting of. I know that if I like it or if I don't like it, there will be people there to support me. There'll be people there to give me, you know, the adiray or to hold my head if I just break down and kind of have some kind of traumatic experience, which by the way, has never really happened. I won't put this on you guys. I tend to overinflate when I'm trying something new, the downside relative to, fuck it, I'm just going to have a good experience here. I'm not trying to solve the world's problems right now. I'm just you know, trying to get laid or I'm trying to have a good time and... Hold up, somebody else, and create you know pleasure and and I'm I'm not doing brain surgery, and I say that having had brain surgery. Brain surgery. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a big fucking deal. Like you don't want to do brain surgery if you stayed at a Holiday Inn Express, but I don't feel like I'm doing that in my life. Uh, I'm having a good time here, and I can make things bigger than they need to be in my head. I guess that's the bottom line. Of what I- Makes sense.
0: I want to be conscious of your, you gentlemen's time, but. There is one thing I, I definitely wanted to cover here, and that is the fact that one thing the three of you are that I am not is a parent. And how does the way that you live your life trickle down into the way that you interact as a parent and
3: your openness as a parent? I think it's made me a better parent. I know that. Yeah, go ahead, Kevin.
1: No, no, you got it. You're, you're halfway into it.
3: Uh well, no, I I appreciate that. I, I feel like the level of introspection that we've been talking about today and, you know, the kind of awareness of self that comes from that has helped me connect with my kids, two boys, by the way. So we could talk about the whole cultural aspect of, there are not a lot of, of boys, unfortunately, that get touch from others. And I still love and hug on my boys all the time. And we'll do that in front of their friends, in front of their partners in front of whomever I give no fucks about that because that level of touch with my boys is important to me, but I digress. It's really kind of coming back to just being able to honor them as people and model for them that there is a different way to show up in the world as a whole person and being male and also helping them within their own awareness building around other people and the privilege that they have had growing up, which I believe both of my boys have a very strong appreciation of and have reflected back, you know, a lot of active anti-racism actions, for example. And I'm also very blessed in having a great partner that we are in alignment relative to our sharing of making sure that our boys have always grown up with a lot of decision making, a lot of autonomy. So... They made decisions when they were little kids that seemed hard to let them make at the time, but the consequences were very small. And we've let them make those decisions over and over in their life. And as the consequences are getting bigger, they're demonstrating that they can make great decisions from this super balanced perspective. And that is something, you know. going back, Mike, to your original question, that I don't know if, without having challenged myself and pushed my edge in all these ways, of you know connecting with who I am, that I could have shared myself as genuinely with my boys and helped them become who they want and who they are becoming.
1: I know that my non-monogamy has been really great with my kids in that it's sort of given it's sort of a beacon of permission to customize their own lives whenever you know yeah. whenever they get old enough. My my kids are both very young. My daughters are are ten and eight, but they already know just by watching mom and dad, that everything, and it, it all comes back to socialization and programming and wiring. They understand that they can rewrite their own wiring if they want to. They understand that they can uh, rewrite their own narrative if they want to. And also just having other adults in my kids' lives that are useful in ways that I am not where like even like, right. just simple stuff. I've had a good string of luck in working with my, my older daughter with her math homework recently. And I'm really excited about that. But there are times where I could tell that we just weren't connecting. And I've got mm-hmm. a partner who's a literal math genius who was willing to jump in and say, hey, I can help out here because I can see that the, the things you're saying, you don't understand the common core math. I'm very well-versed in the common core math. Let me jump in and help your kid. Or if there's a health struggle that, that my kid is dealing with that I don't understand. And I've got a partner who does understand they could jump in and they can lay pathways that I can't. And just having other responsible adults who care about you and care about your kids as much as you do, it's been so amazing having a village of people to help me raise my kids in ways that I, not that there's anything wrong with me. It's just, I have my mm-hmm. limitation and other yeah. people's limitations, yeah. you know, yeah, I love both overlap. of those
3: points, Kevin. Yeah. You know, you've shown your kids different ways that they can create and invent their own relationships. That's powerful. You've also, you know, seen how they can cultivate relationships with other adults. That's powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those, are, those are really amazing. Well, thanks for sharing that.
2: I, I have a son and, and he's 16 now. And it's really made me need to remember to walk the walk, Uh, especially when I talk about relating to women. Because if I were to talk to him about respecting women and then disrespect my wife in front of him, that would be sending a fucking awful message. The thing is, we all have our moments and our weaknesses, and not just during this COVID time, you know, like I can't say that I have never talked to my wife in a way that I shouldn't or mansplain something or or whatever and I'm I'm lucky enough that number one I almost always catch myself in the moment or immediately after but if I don't my wife will absolutely catch me force the issue which I'm very very grateful for because I don't want to be that guy but also like when I have I've needed to remember that not just for my wife do I need to make up for this and, and, and apologize, but I need to explain to my son why I was wrong and go into that because I, I don't want him to have to do all the deprogramming and all the struggle and shit that I had to do. It's not a fucking rite of passage to end up breaking a ton of people's hearts so that you can finally, lo- like I, I've learned, I, I've been lucky enough to have people that have been generous with them. I've also, I've benefited from me Hurting people enough to realize that I was hurting people. I've learned off the backs of other people,
0: Hmm. which
2: is a debt and a responsibility that I always have to take seriously. And honestly, is one of the reasons why I I I see talking or any other number of things that I try to do that aren't empirically good, as as like a service and a responsibility because I you know, I have, I have a lot to make up for. And, and more than just like, I want to make the world better. Like I need to recognize that I hurt people and these are people that I can never like make it right with. Mm. So I need to do the best I can to make that happen. And doing it in a way that my son sees is also important because he also needs to know that like, yeah, you're going to fuck up. And you can paths to making it right with women or with other people that this is how you apologize. You said how you take a breath. This is how all of these things. And so, yeah, like making a mistake in real time with him there and then fixing it as best as I can has really made me take that responsibility even
0: more seriously because he needs to be able to grow up in a way that I didn't. Well said. So with that, I am curious if any of the three of you have final thoughts related to this conversation, anything that you
1: specifically wanted to talk about? The only final thought I really have is that in what Dylan was saying, he said, I didn't want to be that guy. And I feel like I don't want to be that guy. Those words specifically is such a motivator for for like so much of my life and so much of that the life so of the true. people around me. Yeah. Because I know what that guy is and I've seen what that guy is. And so often I have to be reminded, even when I just take a little bit for myself, that I'm not being that guy. So, like, it's it's, it's kind of amazing how we all have that common language for that.
3: True. I so resonate with that, Kevin, because I literally had a conversation with Ginger when Kavanaugh was getting confirmed to the Supreme Court because I was so fearful of, you know, never having wanted to have been that guy. And, and she just literally looked at me in the eye and she was like, you can't be that guy. It's like not in your DNA. And so I think when we have people that we can trust in our lives, who we know tell us the truth in all the situations and take that information in and say, you know, this partner loves me, but she has no reason to lie to me. She's not gonna be in a relationship with somebody who is that guy. And i can bring that in and kind of start to own that and not feel like i need to that i can be my true self that i can be fun and flirtation flirtatious and that it's not going to come across as being swarmy like but i just (laughs) totally resonate with what you shared like i think that is so powerful
0: yeah from my perspective i've been that guy and I I think my desire to be better is coming from a place at least partially of having been toxic in many different ways and not wanting to be about that life anymore because it's not only been damaging to other people, which I profoundly regret, but it's been damaging to myself and I'm big on on breaking cycles. That's kind of my thing right now and whether it's talking to y'all or dealing with the family stuff that I'm dealing with, or expanding my relationship palette. It's all about breaking cycles so that I don't plan on having any kids, but the people who are around me will hopefully pick up on something or see something in their own journey that they can maybe make adjustments to and, and ultimately make themselves better, make the people around them better, make the world better. Now. Yeah. I hope that doesn't sound like ridiculously highfalutin. <laughs> like,
3: uh, it's going to be perfect in post. <laughs> no, So what I would say, like, I, you know, I feel like we have this, like, calling, I don't even know how else to say it, to be challenging each other and to holding each other up. And breaking up cycles, Mike, I think is such, so powerful. Ginger and I have an expression we call radical discontinuity. I mean, it's not just ours, but kind of living through this constant experimentation of trying different things and trying things that you're doing in different ways. So instead of driving to work the same way that you've always driven, like take a different route, like change it up and see what comes out of that process. And I feel like that is part of my unlearning and part of my final thoughts in this conversation is we all shared different ways that we've had to unlearn things that we brought in through observation, through experience or our DNA, however it got into us. We've had this period where we've had to be able to say, is that who really I am? And is that who I want to be going forward? And there's no important question that I ask myself almost every day of those two things. And how can I show up better for myself and know that when I show up for myself, that I can be more for everybody else in my life and that I don't feel burdened by being, you know, the provider. I don't feel burdened by having to show up in a way that is disingenuous um, to who I am. So, you know, that to me is, it's a process of continually challenging ourselves and dialing it in and this practice of radical discontinuity has been so powerful that I've learned from Jen to be able to really practice that and to continue to shake things up and see see how it lands.
2: I got two things. Number one, God, wasn't Kavanaugh such a fucking man, baby? Like <laughs> how, as, as men, right? How could you not look at Kavanaugh's reaction to women asking him a question and not think, what a fucking baby. That's not a guy coming up as masculine and 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 that's not machismo. That's just fucking whiny, cry baby, wah wah wah. Like, oh, you're not getting your way. Oh, you were afraid of losing your shit. Oh, you had some stuff come up in your past. Oh, wah wah wah. The process to becoming a guy that's got some confidence, guy that's in a healthy relationship, uh, a guy that through non-monogamy has had an opportunity to enjoy so many beautiful fucking people okay like i've i've had amazing sex with one person two person five people 10 people like sometimes at the same time like, like you know all, all different combinations of women and people and bodies and all and situations and places and just like <clears throat> non monogamy has has allowed me to explore unbelievably wonderful amounts of of just amazing people and amazing sex and amazing relationships. Uh, yeah, uh, I've talked a lot about like my shit and my mistakes, but it has allowed me to do wonderful fucking things and be with wonderful people and be wonderful things to people. To people. And, and so I come across as a pretty quietly confident guy if I'm just walking around the street or if I enter a space because I don't feel like I have to beat my chest because I don't feel like I have to protect my my territory because I don't feel like I have to defend against other people that are going to come get my life. I'm not saying I don't have moments of insecurity. Yep or, or feeling like I have to man the fuck up. Uh, but I, I don't have them all the time. My default is quietly confident and Mm -hmm. being walking to a stressful situation in which someone has to deal some stuff, whether it's a work environment or, uh, a situation in a store, social situation, community on the street, whatever it is, and just be, and just be quiet and cool and be able to handle my shit is it feels powerful and that to me feels like like that makes somebody masculine and strong it's it's that confidence that knowledge of themselves that knowledge that they don't have to take up space but if they have to they're ready and that they that vulnerability is is healthy but that you are not vulnerable when you allow yourself to be vulnerable to people. If, if I've gotta like say it, like that's the manliest thing I can think of. Like being being able to be vulnerable with your bros, being able to be vulnerable with the women in your life. Like that's confidence. And that is masculine, that's strong. That's what I look for in other men that I wanna be around. That they yeah. don't have to worry, that they don't have to fear because they are their own people.
3: Yeah that's where the learning happens right that sharing is where the learning happens That's that's right magic like if you aren't putting those things on the table there is no opportunity for growth you are safely in your little box and you're talking about you know sports the weather you know hopefully not women in a pejorative way but you have a narrow range of topics that you can navigate within those typical relationships. But Dylan, I love the way that you just described masculinity. It resonates so much with what I feel.
0: Very well said. Thanks so much to my three co-panelists from this episode for taking the time to chat and do so with such honesty. Dylan and Ryan are regulars on the Life on the Swing Set podcast, which has been an ongoing concern for over a decade now. You can find that podcast, which has featured guest appearances from Kevin, and which was co-hosted by me for a year or so at LifeOntheswingset.com or anywhere you enjoy podcasts. If you are on social media, you can follow Dylan at Dylan the Thomas, Kevin at Poly Role Models, and Ryan, along with his wife Ginger, at Ginger and the Prof on Twitter or Ryan aka Prof on IG. You can find their podcast at intellectualforeplay.com. Kevin can be found at kevinapatterson.com. I'm a huge fan of his book, Loves Not Colorblind, Race and Representation in Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities, and you can also find his graphic novel series for hire there. Finally, if you want to hear more of these fine gentlemen engaging with me, I have recorded individual Detox Pod episodes with Dylan, Kevin, and Ryan in the last year or so, so just scroll through the archive and enjoy. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Detoxicity. The show is hosted and produced by me, Mike Joseph. Calvin Williams wrote and performed the music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, and Jacob Block designed the logo. The concept of this show was created by me with inspiration from Jeff Giles and Andrew Grossman. If you'd like to reach out to me to offer feedback, recommend a guest, or guest on the show yourself, feel free to reach out to me via socials. I'm DetoxPodGuy on Instagram, TizMikeJoseph on Twitter. You can also email me, DetoxPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, stay safe and healthy, and take care of yourselves. Till next time, peace.